I no longer view design as the traditional craft-oriented nature of it. I view design as the intent and unintentional impact behind an outcome, recognizing that it is everything and everywhere, and really recognizing that design is possibility. Design also can equal joy, but design also can equal harm if we don't hold ourselves accountable to what we are actually continually creating and designing every second of the day. Welcome back to Design Lab. I'm Bon Koo. On today's show, we have Antoinette Carroll. Antoinette is the founder and CEO of Creative Reaction Lab. It's a nonprofit social enterprise that focuses on designing healthy and racially equitable communities for Black and Latinx populations. They provide education and training programs, community engagement consulting, and open source tools. Creative Reaction Lab tackles racial inequities and works in sectors ranging from education to healthcare. Antoinette has held numerous leadership positions on diversity and inclusion, both at a national level as well as in her own community of St. Louis. I'm so inspired by Antoinette's work and learned so much in my conversation with her. I love her energy and enthusiasm. You will as well. I want to remind you that the best way you can support this podcast is by rating us on Apple Podcasts, downloading, and subscribing to this show. Here's my conversation with Antona Carroll. Antona Carroll, welcome to Design Lab. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm such a fan of your work. And before we get into it, where are you currently located right now during the pandemic? You know, I'm actually in St. Louis, Missouri in the United States, and that is rare for me because prior to the pandemic, I want to say my record was around 124 days being out of town a year. So it's interesting Um, being home. Unbelievable. And I, I listened to one of your interviews and we could probably blame the global pandemic on, on your husband because he wished that <laughs> you could be home more. Is that right? He did. He did. <laughs> Literally, he asked for Christmas in 2019. He said, the only thing I want is for you to be home for a year straight. And I said to him, I was like, dude, that is not realistic. <laughs> that will never happen. And lo and behold, once March hit, like once we hit March Fifth, if I remember correctly, that would be one year for him. And so you can blame him. Uh, I'm sure I'm sure my wife had the same wishes to you. I'm part of that, like one out of every three days not being at home in, in 2019. So it's been really great not to be on a plane. I And I first came across your work through the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the Design for Social Innovation mm-hmm. program. You had spoken there. And I know Mio Saki, who's a chair of the program, because she yes. was on episode 13 of Design Lab with her co-partner, Tina Park from Diagram. And I had come across and listened to your talk. And I've been taking a deep dive into your talks and your work. And I'm just super excited to like learn more about your work. No, that's pretty awesome. You know, most people don't actually know that I attended the School of Visual Arts very briefly. So I, I didn't go there for a master's or undergraduate degree, but I was there for a one-week intensive mm. in 2014 led by Mark Randall, and it was called the Business of Social Impact. And that program, in addition to a program called the Community Arts Training Institute, those were two programs that were very pivotal in me 
moving into the social impact space and really mm. thinking about the power of design within social impact. And that also was the year that I would say my life transformed where I found a creative reaction lab, the main business that I run. It was the year where I uh, also was asked to be the founding chair of the diversity inclusion task force for AIGA, the professional yeah. association of design. And so that SBA actually was very pivotal in my own thinking, really reflecting on what I can do within my own career. Mm, so cool. I want to jump into one of my favorite quotes uh, by you. You say, uh, design is the original disruptor and has the power to change the world. Those of us in the creative community need to understand the power we have and hold ourselves accountable. And I was curious to know how you embrace this view of design and, mm -hmm. you know, do you have a long history of design? Do you come from a family of designers and like just your journey <laughs> to get to this amazing statement? No, it's interesting. Uh, one, when you were reading, I'm like, wow, I don't remember saying that. <laughs> <laughs> it was on there on the internet. I found it. <laughs> I know dude, you just took me back a little bit. And so it's interesting when I was growing up, I was the DIY kid. I was, we used to have art hours in the living room with my grandmother and yet uh, we never learned about design and we never even knew art could be a career. Uh, mm. Both of them were essentially non-existent. And when we thought of art, we thought of painters. And my father had bought me an easel when I was a child. It was one of the worst experiences I've ever had in my <laughs> life. And I was like, you know, I'm, I'm Wait, not- Wait, why? Why not. was that? You know, I, it, me and the acrylic paint just wasn't really mixing. Like, and then when you don't even get me started on oil painting, I'm just like, <laughs> no, now I love a good watercolor. <laughs> but it just, I remember because I thought art and creativity only was relegated to painters at that time. Mm. I didn't really understand the power of creativity and the power of design. It was something I had to learn during my undergraduate studies. After I shifted my major from being a, a biology major and wanting to be a biotechnologist and study the human genome to actually being a design major. <laughs> well, I did not know that. You're kind of like me. You're like a little science geek. I was a student. Like I still remember in high school in 10th grade, I loved chemistry. I was like, I was the student that everyone hated in chemistry <laughs> class because they will all flunk the test and I would get like 100% on it. So I would mess up the... <laughs> <laughs> up the curve for everyone because I love science so much. And then I had to switch schools uh, my junior year and they didn't have chemistry. They only had biology. Hmm. And so I ended up switching into the biology space and competing in different science fairs and ultimately ended up receiving a full ride to college off of science. Wow. Uh, and had everything they tell you you're supposed to have. I had a 4.0 my freshman year. I had a prestigious internship at the Donald Danford Plant Science Center. I, you know, essentially had everything they say you need to have to be successful. And I realized that while I was good at it, it didn't necessarily bring me joy. Mm. And so that was one of the first times I started to really think about when was I most joyful? Mm. And I kept going back to those living room art sessions with my grandmother. And so design was a pathway of me really getting closer to art without the paint, <laughs> without the painting. Um, and since then, I no longer view design as like the traditional craft oriented nature of it. I view yeah. design as 
the intent and unintentional impact behind an outcome, recognizing that it is everything and everywhere, and really recognizing that design is possibility. Mm-hmm. Design also can equal joy, but design also can equal harm if we don't hold ourselves accountable to what we are actually continually creating and designing every second of the day. Yeah. I, I love that. I love you have this science mind and this design mind intertwined. It's I the know. two don't, I think people think they need to choose one or the other in the creative community. If people think like that person's creative, I'm not creative. And I right. see that a lot. I see that a lot in my medical students where yeah. they think, oh, I have a science mind and people, the others in the arts are the creative people. I'm like, no, you are as equally creative and it's actually as important in our field of medicine as it is in the creative fields. Because creativity is, is the foundation of who we are, right? Like when we think about when we started preschool, if you went to kindergarten, it usually started where it was around building blocks and colorful rugs and collaboration and exploration and as time went on, we were taught to stand in rows and sit in, in rigid seats and have to raise our hands to receive permission to actually talk. And so we actually get the creativity taught out of us, but mm-hmm. it is not as if it just disappears. It's just, it just needs to be pulled out a little yeah. bit. And we need to recognize that we are exerting creativity in all the decisions that we're making. And some people would argue that accountants shouldn't be creative. (laughs) I would would agree with that to a degree um, when when they're working on books. But, you know, when I even think about the intersection or or the connection of design and the sciences, in the design thinking space, the methodology of design thinking is very similar to scientific methodology. It is. You know? It <laughs> is. And yet we, for some reason, I think it's a language game. And I think part of it is ego that people want to own it. Yeah. But it's like, actually, we think very similar. We may just have different languages on how we're applying it. And if we actually recognize that it's just one of the barriers, we probably be able to collaborate and do more together. 100%. That's I had wrote a book last year on applying design thinking in healthcare, but mm. one of the reasons why I did it was, you know, co-wrote with Ellen Lupton, who's a really mm-hmm. famous design author, but to provide this language that doctors and people in healthcare can understand what designers do and vice versa, that we share this common language. I think there are a lot of misconceptions out there on like what design is. And I loved your TED talk from 2019 And I'm going to paraphrase something you said about design. You could correct me if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. You said design is more than just the objects around us, but design is the ways in which we engage with each other and the systems in which we live. And I wanted to know if you could unpack that a little bit more for listeners. Yeah. I one can I just say Ellen lumped I am convinced that she just wakes up breathing books. Like I Like, I, I, I won't say goals because I don't want to be as great of a writer as her. I just, she writes so much. I'm like, I have no desire of that, but I just want one book to kind of come out of this head. <laughs> and Ellen is just able to like push it, just boom, boom, boom. So I just want to name that. <laughs> I worship her. She's amazing. And she's so disciplined. Like mm-hmm. she gets up super early in the morning and starts writing 365 days a year. I think when we were writing on a book, she sent me some stuff on Christmas day. I'm like, this lady never stops. She's like <laughs> always and always writing on Saturdays and Sundays. And mm-hmm. I think it's her craft that she just 
enjoys and she's just so disciplined about it. And it was the first book I, I read and I was just lucked out that I got to write a book with one of my favorite authors. Yeah. I wonder if that's like a form of joy and liberation for her. You know, I think like so. when you really think about how much she puts into them. So I obviously we're shouting you out, Ellen. You're, you know, whoo, you're amazing. <laughs> Ellen uh, up there from episode <laughs> one. Check it out. But, you know, going back to uh, the quote you brought from my TED Talk, which I want to know was in 2018. Oh, 2018. Uh, sorry. Uh-huh. That's how time is flying, which is a little yeah. surprising. Uh, but when I think about design, and I spoke to this very quickly just a few moments ago, it is recognizing that design is the intent and unintentional impact behind an outcome and recognizing that outcomes are everywhere and everything. Mm. We are affecting outcomes like just by being. Like I affect mm. my own personal outcomes. I affect the outcomes of my staff, the outcomes of my children, the outcomes of my husband, my family. And because folks listen to me and I'm in that privileged position, I have to recognize that in my leadership role, I also am affecting people's outcomes in their own lives that maybe I've never even met, right? Mm. And so when you really start to understand the, the permanence and the depth of how design is showing up everywhere, you're then able to look at the world differently and recognize that that also means that other folks in positions of privilege and power mm. have been able to design outcomes. And many a times it's them centering their own narrative and lived experiences mm-hmm. that have led to different systems, particularly systems of oppression, inequality, and inequity. Yeah. And you say in that talk that r- r- you say racism and oppression are design systems. Mm-hmm. And because of that, there's an opportunity there, right? Yeah. To redesign, to redesign, right? Because it's, I think sometimes we live too passively. I, I, I And I was one of them, you know, growing up, it was like, this is what the world has handed me. I'm just navigating a path that was assigned. Uh, I maybe would do slight skews here and there, but most of the time it was as I engaged with another person that they had their dreams and aspirations. And so I ended up following their path because this was their recommendation for me. And so it's not as if we are not affected by other people's biases and consciences and directions that they're leading. Of course we are. We all are affected by it. And we also need to recognize that passiveness doesn't help anyone. It actually many times upholds the systems mm-hmm. uh, of status quo and upholds the systems of harm and lacks accountability and it lacks responsibility. And the statement ignorance is bliss, I think someone created that to say, I just don't want to deal with what I know I should be doing. Mm. Because when we talk about ignorance is bliss, it essentially is saying avoidance of conflict, right? Avoidance of discomfort. And a lot of that is actually um, tenets of white supremacy narratives. Mm. It's one of those where we just want to be comfortable and therefore feel that everyone should commit acts to make us feel comfortable, but not recognizing that comfort also in some spaces have led to the perpetuation of the status quo of exclusion mm. and the status quo of further disparities and the status quo of inequities. Mm. And so I am actively saying it's not enough to just live passively, but really think about how do we redesign the systems that we're navigating every single day? And it's along the same lens of when people say it's not enough to just say, I'm not racist. Mm. You have to actively work to be anti-racist. Yeah. And I love this term that I heard you say a lot. You had this phrase, equity designer. 
Yes, and which has been expanded to actually be Redesigners for Justice. Redesigners for Justice. What? And yeah. that's such a beautiful term. And it. it's something that I think everyone can embrace, whether or not you are in the design field per se, but that some of these principles that you lay out in your company that you, or in your organization that you co-founded or the CEO of, mm-hmm. that that it could apply to a whole array of disciplines and fields. Absolutely. And uh, so Redesigners for Justice, in a sense, it's, it's kind of like a coin, right? <laughs> so on one side, you can be an equity designer because you are proximate to the issue at hand. You have that living expertise and therefore should be the one into center, really kind of shifting how things should be created and designed or redesigned. And there are situations where we may not be the ones that are proximate to the issue. We may not be the living experts, but yet we still actively are called to charge to do the work. And that's when you have the design allies. These are individuals that leverage their power and access on behalf of the equity designers. And it's not as if it's a job description. It's not as if, you know, you're either one or the other. It honestly depends on the context. And so I can be an equity designer for black women or for uh, survivors of gun violence, but I cannot be an equity designer for the LGBTQIA plus community, but I can be a design ally in that space. Mm -hmm. But overall, how I'm showing up is that I'm a redesigner for justice. It's just internally, I know which space I need to yield power and which space I need to wield my -hmm. power. And I encourage us to move beyond just change making because I feel like change making also doesn't put a qualifier of actually pushing for equity. Mm. Whereas with Redesigners for Justice, it is us saying that you are intentionally also centering racial and ethnic equity and people first. Mm. You're embedded in the community. You're working to change. You're constantly iterating, making and improving on intervention. And you're building upon the existing resources that are there opposed to erasing what is already being done. Mm. I love the origin story of the Creative Reaction Lab. Can you tell us how a 24-hour design challenge sparked Creative Reaction Lab? That's what I've I've read somewhere. Mm -hmm. It did. And let's be clear, I did not sleep much. (laughs) (laughs) So Creative Reaction Lab was not originally started to be a business. I had no intention of making it a business. I was working full-time as head of communications at a diverse inclusion nonprofit. Mm. While it wasn't, quote-unquote, the perfect position, because I don't think perfect ever exists. Again, perfectionism, former white supremacy. I'm just going to keep throwing those in there. (laughs) But I was still happy with what I was doing. And then the uprising in Ferguson began. And Ferguson is a municipality within St. Louis, Missouri. My family and I had actually just moved from Ferguson six months prior to the Mm. uprising. And I tended to be in spaces because of my position of working at a diverse inclusion organization. Folks that are saying, what do we do around this? But not once did they ever ask me about my lived experience. Not Mm. once did they ask me about not only living in Ferguson, but also living in neighborhoods that were even more so historically underinvested in Ferguson Hmm. and also more segregated Hmm. than Ferguson, right? And so I decided, well, I'm not going to just be about this awareness piece, uh, which I felt a lot of spaces was doing. And there also was a lot of segregation, like 
designers were talking to art the, to designers, government officials mm. were talking to government officials. I even was at a session when dancers were talking to dancers and they thought that I was a unique unicorn because I created a pretty sign. So, you know, <laughs> like the segregation was real, wow. even in the approach to address racial yeah. segregation. Oh my goodness. Um, and also it tended to focus on awareness and not action. And so I created Creative Reaction Lab, which was a 24-hour design challenge, bringing together creative professionals as well as uh, some activists on the ground to come up with interventions addressing St. Louis's racial division. Because of what came out of that night, we had over 60 ideas pitched, five were active, actively cultivated, and all five were launched in St. Louis within a year with wow. continual mentorship and funding and support. And that led to the spark of Creative Reaction Lab and ultimately created the entity. I do want to make one quick note. We no longer do 24 hour challenges. One, not sustainable. <laughs> Let me just say that. You don't want to know. Sleep is important. Yeah, you don't want to know what driving home from those 24 hour challenges was like. I am very grateful to be here, okay? <laughs> and I'm grateful that the people on the road also or here in this world. So one, <laughs> we don't do that anymore, even though we did two more, which was one around domestic violence and another one around gun violence. So we did that for a while, but I also felt that the 24-hour challenge itself focused too much on the intervention and not enough on the people. Hmm. And so now, Creative Reaction Lab, when we think about impact, we believe that people plus intervention equals impact. What is that mindset shift? What is that capacity building and recognizing the micro interventions they create today will ultimately lead to macro interventions or, or impact over time. And that's why we primarily work with Black, Latinx, and sometimes Indigenous youth mm. to have them develop a racially equitable and healthy interventions around community improvement. Mm. And for those listening who want to engage with Creative Reaction Lab, what are some ways that they could find you and uh, engage with your organization? People can find Creative Reaction Lab on most of the social media channels. We are not on TikTok yet because we like we're like we ain't doing dancing videos. Like that's not really our thing. Um, but you my can... my daughter's always on TikTok. She's fifteen. That is like her main source yep. of consumption. Yep. My son. My I have twin sons, and one of them in particular, he always does editing videos on TikTok. So yes. he's really into editing right now. But I will say we're on Instagram. We're on Facebook, Twitter, as well as LinkedIn. If you look us up, we use our acronym, which is CRXLAB okay. on uh, most of those platforms. And not only do we have promotions there, but we also have, honestly, educational posts because mm. this work is around movement building and recognizing that it's just not about one individual, one institution is around us actually building out this movement and all of us collectively doing the work. I'll also add that we actually do public educational programs, particularly through our Redesigners in Action webinar series. And if you attend those, we are actually about to start a third version because, you know, you have to have several prototypes. We've had a few prototypes yeah. through Facebook and Slack. And now we finally found our platform called Mighty Networks, where it's a Redesigners for Justice internal community of folks that are learning with one another on how to actually apply mm. And you also offer workshops as well. Is that correct? We do. We do institutional workshops uh, across multiple uh, different sectors. The four sectors we tend to focus on the most is 
education, media technology, government and public service, and health and healthcare. Mm-hmm. And we call these sectors narrative and livelihood shapers, recognizing that they have not only shaped the perspectives we have about ourselves and others, but also our life expectancy and quality of life. Mm-hmm. And we need to have that equity-centered shift within these institutions, but again, not just through awareness, but what does it look like to actually bring it to action? Yeah. And so we do those, do workshops with clients in addition to our youth programming as well. Great. And so if you're interested in one of those, you could just go to your website, creativeactionlab.com and yes, sign up for long. it. It's long. I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Easy to remember. <laughs> I want to shift gears a bit and I'm curious to know what you're, from your experience, what do you think is the relationship between health and equity? Paul, what is it, the relationship Mm. between health and equity, right? Like, so, you know, my work is centered on racial equity. So I talk a lot about systemic racism and recognizing that racism is a public health issue, Mm. right? Like when we talk about the social determinants of health, and the intersection of like housing and transportation and environments, right? Like all these different things impact our life expectancy and quality of life. The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation by themselves found that every seven minutes, a black person dies prematurely Mm. due to the effects of racial discrimination. And when we think about health, and that includes public health, community health, but also healthcare, these are industries and outcomes that directly are impacting how we survive and how we thrive. Mm. And if we are not having a really tough conversation and honestly shifts within these sectors around how we are impacting people's lives, I think there's um, continual injustice that happens there. As a black woman, I am more at risk to have unfortunately negative health outcomes when it comes to you know, heart diseases, when it comes to uh, birth, when it comes, right, when it comes to sickle cell anemia, like all these different mm-hmm. things, it, it, it affects me at a higher rate than anyone else. And I won't say anyone else, but it affects me at a higher rate than mm-hmm. other identity groups. I also want to note, like, when you look at the definition of equity, equity is when outcomes are not predictable based on someone's identity. Mm-hmm. So when you think about one, that I brought up the definition of design earlier about it being intentional and unintentional impact behind outcomes, when you think about health being nothing but producing outcomes, right? And it's either sustaining it, mitigating it, or improving it. And then if you look at equity being nothing, essentially pushing for us to not have essentially predetermined outcomes, these worlds are automatically intertwined. I just think that there's this language game, again, where we don't really see how we are intersectional and interdependent on each other. And that then allows us to have a sense of detachment and lack of responsibility of what actually needs to be done. And we're seeing that during the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. Where black Americans are dying two, even in some cases, like three times the rate as white Americans during the pandemic. And I've, I've been working in the emergency room throughout the pandemic and, Mm -hmm. you know, the sickest patients I've taken care of are black Philadelphians. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's yeah. consistent over and over where uh, many of these patients live in these multi-generational households. You know, they're living with their grandma, their niece, their brother. They can't really quarantine. A lot of them have service jobs where they can't just be 
home at Zoom all day. They have to take public yeah. transportation. And the virus has really ravaged these communities. And, and it comes from decades-long systemic racism that has mm-hmm. happened in those communities. And racism, I think, is a biggest influencer of these social determinants of health, the housing, jobs, access to healthy food. And I mean, last year was, I think the first time I've seen at leadership levels in healthcare system, leaders talking about this openly mm-hmm. and naming it, which mm-hmm. I haven't really seen done that widespread before. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say, I think also what we're seeing is the continual historical and contemporary form of underinvestment in these communities. Before I even go on, I want to say one, thank you for your work and your service. You all are our heroes and you all put your yourselves on the line every day. And you are, you were already doing that before the pandemic. And in a situation like this, where no one knows what the outcome is going to be, we're all guessing and hoping yeah. right? to continually show up. That is the definition of being a hero. And that is the definition of being a redesigner for justice. Yeah. Right. So I wanted to just thank you for that. Mm. Yeah. Also, I want to highlight something you brought up. So in my family comes from, like I said, either being restaurant workers or they Oh, my family owned a restaurant in Newark, New Jersey. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I wish we were the owners. We were the workers. Like we're the <laughs> we're the workers. Like literally I'm convinced my family keeps Burger King in business. Like I'm just gonna be very honest. Like my first time my first official job because you know I've been working since I was eleven. You always gotta keep the hustle going. But you know, my first official job was actually at Burger King. And mm. and then it was White Castle. And then it was back to Burger King. And the way I was able to break that cycle was that my family really supported me going to college because neither one of my parents even graduated from high school. Mm. And so I was essentially the first of many things mm. and still remain, unfortunately, to be the first of many things. My family or either in the restaurant. So as you all are calling all your Uber Eats and your DoorDash <laughs> and your Postmates, my family are the ones that's doing that work. Mm. And my family also are the ones that are kind of the lower level administrators in the healthcare system. They're mm. in the labs. And when COVID-19, the blood samples, all of that, they're the ones that's monitoring that. Mm. Or they're security guards and they're, ho- and they're home cleaners. They're, mm. That's essentially the legacy of my family. And one of the things I had to grapple with was the reality that my family was viewed as essential, but not but was not valued as essential. Hmm. And I think there's a difference, right? It's like people, they talk about essential workers, but most of the time at the level where my family is, there's not the same equivalent of value there. And my cousin's fiance, my first cousin's fiance, because we're very close in our family, to your mm-hmm. multi-generational household, yeah. things of that nature. He lost both of his parents to COVID-19. Oh. I mean, not parents, I'm sorry, grandparents to COVID-19 because his grandparents raised him. And then also, literally last month, four of my family members contracted COVID-19. Made it through 2020. We were like, you know, everyone thought that once (laughs) it hit midnight in 2021, we're like, we made it. Um, And four of my family members. Oh, my my, goodness. My nephew, he ended up with, I think it's Rhino. Is it Rhino? 
I would say it wrong. <laughs> I always call it the animal disease. My family <laughs>, laughs at me. But essentially, the really uh, the cold for folks that um, have really bad asthma. So he had that, also pneumonia and COVID nineteen at the same time. Oh my god! So he was in the ICU. Oh. His mother, my sister, is pregnant with twins and ended up contracting oh. COVID nineteen because of oh. it. And then my little sister, also taking care of both of them, contracted COVID nineteen. And then my cousin, the one that again lost his grandparents, contracted COVID. Oh my goodness! And so, it to your point, the ripple effect is way more drastic because they don't have the privilege of yeah. sitting at home and having the safety of being quarantined. Mm -hmm. Because if they don't go out, they're already further at. Uh, the margins are being underinvested economically yeah. that if they don't go and do their work, they're falling more and more into extreme poverty where they already was living and existing. Yeah. Oh. So, I'm so sorry to hear that. And I, you know, I think what this pandemic has exposed was the fragilities of our social system and that mm -hmm. this linkage between health and equity and and, and also that we have to care for all these communities. We just can't care about the healthiest and richest zip code that yeah. when a community does badly, no matter where it is, we're no longer isolated from that. And I think mm -hmm. this virus and this pandemic showing us that our social systems, our networks are interlinked and yeah. that we really, you know, we're only as healthy as our unhealthiest community. Mm -hmm. And yet, unfortunately... There are still folks that because of their positionality, because of their privilege, are able to move through life as if, as if nothing has happened. Yeah. And it amazes me that I still see people taking like vacations and like all these things. And I'm just like, yeah. what? are we trusting people? Like, are we walking around with hazmat like <laughs> suits on? Like, what are we doing? And it's because, especially in the United States, right? Because I speak from the United States context. I want to be very clear. Yeah. I never want to assume what it's like in another country because I've yeah. never lived there. So from the United States context, we are very big on individualism, which again, is a tenet of white supremacy. Yeah. <laughs> but big on individualism means that when we feel that we are losing our rights to do what we want, our free will is how we present it, we automatically push back forgetting that there have already been many communities that have not had the privilege of individualism throughout their generation, yeah. right? And we're seeing that not only in the Black community and Indigenous community, we're seeing this also with the continual attacks in the Asian and Asian American yeah. community. Like this work and th these problems affect all of us, as you just stated, but yet one of the greatest tools that was created was division, mm. right? Division and, and negative power, because I think power is neutral. But mm. when people exert power negatively and pretty much centering themselves, they usually are the folks on the other end that are affected more drastically. Yeah. And even with the folks that are underinvested, we are too busy battling ourselves mm -hmm. that the folks that are in the center and are more privileged they don't have to worry about it yeah. because we're had, we're doing the job for them. Yeah. I remember even in, in the beginning part of the pandemic, uh, there'd be certain cases because, you know, I work in the emergency room. I want to protect other people. I would be sometimes the only person wearing a mask when I'm in the public setting. And then I was like, 
I kind of felt a little bit, and this is a little crazy. I felt a little bit self-conscious. I'm like, mm. I'm the Asian guy with a mask, <laughs> you know, like what, mm. what are other people thinking? I'm like, I was like, I can't believe I'm thinking that I'm like a doctor, you know, I'm like doing this for a, a public health message, but I'm like thinking, are they just looking at me? Cause I'm the Asian guy <laughs> and I'm wearing yeah. a mask. You know, it's interesting when it first started to pick up, because let's be clear, it's the reason why there's a 19 behind that. People. <laughs> I don't know why everyone seemed to think it was like invented in 2020. But when it first started to pick up, I remember there was a lot of memes, particularly in the black community, of the fact that we can't walk around with masks. Mm. especially in the beginning because there's a history of when we mm. were in masks we're automatically criminalized mm. and what is it actually and so there was actually a fear of wearing masks in the black community wow. because we saw that as being detrimental to our health because we could be killed because people would feel threatened by us having our face covered right wow so yeah it, oh. it's interesting when you think about all of the the things we have to navigate when it comes to our different identities. And some of it also is seeped in trauma and generational trauma and shackles in a sense that mm-hmm. I, I use that term intentionally because that poverty of mind and poverty of spirit is very deep and it's not just economic. And it's yeah. the same when it comes to the isms, right? It is not just the old, you know, overt and COVID. like it's, it's, it's a lot of things embedded in that. Mm. Oh man, we are running out of time. I could talk with you forever. I I want to end by talking about the Equity Center Community Design Field Guide that you Mm -hmm. developed. You can download it for free at creativeactionlab.com. Yes. And for listeners who don't know what that is, can you explain what that is and what the impact has been? Absolutely. So Equity Center Community Design is a framework that we created Uh, creative problem-solving framework to really center uh, the role of history and healing, power dynamics, and community voice when it comes to addressing these systems of inequity within our society, which I will argue is everywhere. That is global. That is not just in the United States. And uh, it really is, how do we really build our humility to actually become empathetic? And again, not just sit in the space of awareness, but also bring about action have this space of consciousness raising, but also, okay, as my consciousness is raising, as I'm learning and unlearning, what am I actually going to do about it? And so our field guide is providing people with guidance, activities, and in some spaces, community, to really have folks really start to apply, what do I do about it in the neighborhoods uh, that they're working and the institutions that they're working, even sometimes in their family. Mm -hmm. Regarding the impact, it's interesting because when we have started to do the impressions of our reach, and so we have apparently, according to my data and evaluation coordinator, had over a a half a million impressions of this framework and field guide across the globe. Wow. We, We have had folks reach out to us from Fiji, from Paris, from Australia. Australia loves us. What? So <laughs> like, cool. <laughs> they love us in Australia. And of course, different in Canada, different parts of the United States. And the reason we open source is because we recognize, again, that we are navigating centuries, if not thousands of years of oppression. And it's not going to be done by one institution or one country. It is something that we actively need to do together. And so instead of us going into other spaces and saying, here's what we think you should do, we actually are providing people with the tools and say, 
modify it, build it out as you see fit for your specific community and in a sense have co-ownership over it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to end with a final question. I've been asking a lot of people coming on the show during this pandemic is how are you finding um, like rest and respite during the pandemic? For me, one of the things I've been doing is start this podcast because I get so inspired meeting people like you. It's a, and like oh. I take a deep dive into all the guests who come on. You know, I've watched so many talks by you, and so when I get to meet you, I'm like, whoa, this is so cool. I'm meeting I her in, like in per- well, sort of in person, virtually, <laughs> but like you're you're talking to me, so I I geek out. And it's a way that I get inspired. Mm. I'm inspired by every single guest who, who comes on. So uh, yeah, so how have you been finding? a respite during this pandemic? You know, it's interesting. I, I'm going to answer that and I want to call out, like, I, my dream is to, one of my dreams is to start a podcast. I just, my brain goes to, I, I can't do the editing. I need someone to, like, <laughs> produce and edit. I can't do it. You, you got you to get someone like Rob. He does all that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I'm like, I can't do it. But I, I actually want to first at least start in the United States. And once we kind of move a little bit more through the pandemic, interview folks on the ground around how they're being redesigners for justice yeah, and, oh. and really having, uh, you know, that conversation. But I would say, you know, for me, rest has been hanging with my family and honestly, Netflix and I are good friends right yeah. now. Like I just started the show Supernatural uh, with my husband and it literally just started as it was ending, by the way. They were yeah. 15 seasons, and we are now on season 14. But I would even say finding things like coloring. Like, people mm. underestimate the value of writing poetry and doing adult coloring and honestly just finding ways to draw and be creative. And uh, I even have a, a book on my nightstand that is like one creative thing you can do a day and one of them had me like putting ink on my my fingerprint and creating music notes out of it right it's like finding ways to just decompress and be because my work requires a lot out of me and because mm-hmm. my work for me isn't a job it isn't a career it's my purpose yeah and when it's your purpose it's deep rooted and deep seated in you but that means also sometimes that purpose takes over and you forget that one of your purpose also has to be liberation for yourself and so I always try to find time to make sure I'm continuing the liberation of myself. Thank you, Antonia Carroll, for being on Design Lab. So inspiring. Great to meet you. Thank you. Thank you. That was my conversation with Antonia Carroll. Now I'm joined by the producer of Design Lab, Rob Puglisi. What's up, Rob? What's going on? I love that conversation with Antoinette. What did you think? My favorite takeaway from that conversation was this concept of being a redesigner for justice. I love that term. I think any one of us can claim that in our profession, whether we are a designer or not, that what we do can help to promote justice in our society. And I think inherent to Antoinette's description of this is this idea of whether you're an equity designer or you're a design ally, right? And if you're an equity designer, that means you have that lived experience. And being an equity designer, essentially that design is for you. You've had that experience and and you are the designer uh, along with your allies who support you. So much of the work that we do in the healthcare space in some ways 
is really about justice because if we improve these social determinants health, if we improve education, housing, employment, that's going to improve the overall health of the community. So what she's doing is, is she is doing health work and justice work at the same time. Yeah, it really is incredible. And it kind of reminds us all that, especially in healthcare, we all need to be design allies. Next week, our guest is from Africa, from Kenya. Is that right? That's right. Next week, we have our first podcast guest from the continent of Africa. We have Michael Gigi. He is a designer from Nairobi, Kenya. Nairobi, and that is a cosmopolitan, huge city. And he has an amazing story of how he became a designer. I think everyone's going to love it. And he's done so much public health work there in multiple countries across Africa. That's right. He's a studio director for Think Place Global. And they have studios all over the world and they tackle these really tough challenges, many of them relating to health and public health using design thinking. Can't wait to hear from Michael. You're not going to want to miss that. You can find Antoinette Carroll on social media, both on Instagram and Twitter, and you can learn more about her work by visiting creativereactionlab.com. Thank you, everyone, for giving us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Currently, that's the only platform you can actually rate us and leave a comment. And you can also support us by subscribing and downloading episodes on whatever platform you use to listen. Reach out to me on social media. My Twitter handle is at Bonku. My Instagram is at drbonku. Design Lab was produced by the one and only Rob Puglisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu from Double Take Labs. See you next week. Music